0: Words of Psalm chapter 24, verse 1, which say this, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all its people belong to him. Today, no matter how you may be feeling, no matter what you may be experiencing in this life, I want to encourage you to take hope and take heart that nothing is beyond the Lord's reach. All of this, all of our whole earth, And all the world belonged to him. He knows you. He loves you. And in Christ, he calls you his very own. Today, we're asking for a friend. Does Jesus care about creation? As Christians, what is our responsibility, if any, to the environment, climate change, to the earth, and even beyond? How does God's word speak to this question? Did Jesus give any insight into this question? And for some of you, you might be thinking, does this question even matter? Do we need to, why do we need to ask this question? According to a Pew Research poll released this past November, about half of you just answered that question. Not really. Not really. This question doesn't really take priority for me. It's not a question that concerns me. Last November, the Pew Research Group released a nationwide survey that found 61% of deeply convicted people of faith. Do not believe that present day environmental issues concern them or their faith. And if you find yourself among the 61%, then I, I want to say that's okay. That's okay. That's why we're in this series. We're asking the questions and seeking to find God's word in these questions. And so if you, if you find yourself right now just at the very at the very hint of us talking about creation care and environmental issues and things like that, if you find yourself feeling a bit disengaged, then I wanna say that's totally okay. And you're welcome here. And your questions are welcome. And today what we're gonna do is we're gonna open God's word and we're going to invite God's word to illuminate for us some possibilities for how we might consider this topic other voices in our culture right now say something a little bit different than perhaps what others might think. In a January 2023 global survey conducted by the World Economic Forum, respondents ranked the most significant global risks threatening humanity over both a two-year and a 10-year period of time. The following list shows their results. And take notice of the results in green those results pertain to environmental risks over a 2 year period of time the environmental risks are certainly present but scattered among the ordering but over the next 10 years a good a good amount of global citizens from nations across our world rank environmental issues in the top half of concern overwhelmingly according to this according to this Survey, environmental issues rank among the greatest threats to global society, according to this survey. While 61% of Christians with a deeply committed faith and who are deeply committed to the church don't necessarily view this issue in the same way. And so right now, as we speak, a wide chasm exists between Christians who live in the U.S. in particular and global citizens in nations around the world. Today, my aim is to simply show this that among any social, political, or religious group in the world, Christians have the clearest mandate of all people to lead the world on caring for creation, to lead the world. On this particular issue. Maybe not necessarily how culture presents this issue, but to lead the world in caring for creation. How do I make that claim? Well, let's begin in the beginning. Genesis chapters 1 and 2 open with two similar but uniquely distinct creation narratives. In the first creation narrative, God created male and female, blessed them, and then charged them twice in verses 26 and 28 to rule over creation. Other translations might say to reign or to have dominion, but the meaning is the same. Underneath the English translation of to rule over is the Hebrew term rada. Radah. This term appears in several places throughout the Old Testament. In Leviticus 25, for example, the author speaks to the master-servant relationship, saying do not rule, meaning masters don't rule over your servants ruthlessly, but fear your God, revealing early in the Old Testament, God's character and heart for all people. In Psalm chapter 72, the psalmist foreshadows the Messiah, who we know is Jesus Christ, writing, may the king's rule, may Jesus' rule be refreshing like spring rain on freshly cut grass, like the showers that water the earth. In Genesis chapter 1, God clearly grants human beings' rada ruling authority. Over all creation. And according to this narrative, God clearly gave humanity the keys to the kingdom, so to speak. And based on this definition of Radah, one could argue that God grants human beings his full permission to use the earth's natural resources for any means necessary to advance human society. One could make that argument. If you only read Genesis chapter 1. But in the second creation narrative, in Genesis chapter 2, the the same author writing the same letter records a very different word to describe how God invites humanity to relate with his good creation. Unlike radah, meaning to rule, God calls humanity to abad. Abad creation. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 14, 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. The phrase take care of it is translated from the Hebrew term abad. Other translations might say to tend, to tend to the garden. But the most literal translation of abad means to serve, to serve. God doesn't repeat the same charge from Genesis chapter 1 like we might expect in Genesis chapter 2. Rather, God complements His charge to humanity to rule by equally calling His people to serve on the surface. these two terms, Ra and abad, appear in opposition don't they to some extent don't they appear as opposing opposites to one another? But when held together, both both creation accounts in Genesis chapter one and Genesis chapter two portray the image of a master embodying the ethos, the way of a servant. Or like a king, embracing the heart of a subject. Sounds impossible, right? I mean, how could we possibly live in this way? Who, who could possibly live in this way? Oh, wait a minute. Jesus lived this way. <laughs> this describes Jesus. Jesus did this. In Philippians chapter 2, the apostle Paul wrote to us, to the, he wrote to the church in Philippians, but then he wrote this letter extends to all Christians everywhere. He said this, in your relationships with one another. So in the way that we relate to each other as friends, as followers of Jesus, the way that we relate to our neighbors in this world, he says this, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God, something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. This is Jesus. By taking the very nature of what? A servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. What does this describe? This describes a bod. This is the very definition and embodiment of a bod. And then Paul continues in the very next verse. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place. It gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. So mysterious. And every tongue acknowledged that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In fact, this passage is so mysterious that Paul wrote this as a hymn as a song to sing, because some truths, quite frankly, are just hard to read on the surface. You almost need to sing them to experience the full weight and magnitude of what Paul's trying to say. But what Paul just described in the latter half of this passage is redah. This is redah. Jesus here is being portrayed as one who who serves, who made himself nothing in total humility to come to us. And then also one who was then exalted and who is reigning right now from his throne as a good king for each and every single one of us over the world, this whole earth, and the cosmos that all belong to him. (laughs) How amazing. How amazing. And what might be even... Not more amazing than that, but but what is also amazing is the fact that from the very beginning of time, God formed humanity. You and me and every human being who bears his image with the same character of Radah and Abad as the sun. Though the commands to rule and to serve might seem incompatible on the surface, God calls us to hold them in tension together as stewards. Now, what is a steward? A steward is a person charged with the full responsibility and authority to care for something that belongs to someone else. It's the cleanest definition of a steward. And in this way, you are a steward. I'm a steward. You've been given authority over priceless value that does not belong to you, doesn't belong to me. Priceless value of things such as this world. You've been given authority over this world, to rule over this world and to serve this world, over your life. Did you know that your life doesn't belong to you either? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. And the price that was purchased for you is Jesus hanging on a cross for the forgiveness of your sin to redeem you from sin to everlasting life. Therefore, your life does not belong to you. Your family doesn't belong to you. Every parent in this room knows that your children are a gift from above. Your spouse doesn't belong to you. You don't own your spouse. And your gifts, for that matter, they don't belong to you. For God graciously formed your gifts in you. As God's steward over the world, you've been charged to radah and to abad, to rule over and to serve. If we lean too far on the radah side of this charge, then we risk believing the lie that we actually own this world. That we own our own lives. That we own those in the, within the sphere of our influence. If we lean too far on the abad side, however, then we risk becoming passive. About letting life just happen to us. Letting things just happen. Passive and aloof to the needs of creation. To the needs of each other. Maybe even to our own needs. Instead, we're more like lessees to our God who is our lessor. And because of his great love for us, he has given us permission to shape and to help realize the potential of his creation. In my study for this message, I was... Reminded once again in Genesis chapters one and two that when God gave the garden to Adam and Eve, to first humanity, God gave a not yet fully formed garden. And part of the charge to rule over and to serve is to actually help realize the potential of the garden. That we get to participate in the formation and creative process of the garden. I mean, amazing. When you really start to think about this and let this soak into your heart and into your faith, God gave us a mind like His own to imagine ideas and bring them forth into reality, not as God, but as creatures in His creation. I think this is one of the most difficult realities for us to grasp, quite frankly, that we are creatures in God's creation. Because the loudest, most authoritative voices in our culture, and sometimes those places even in our own heart, consistently tell us that we are autonomous, that I am my own man and that you don't have any bearing on me, and quite frankly, I probably don't have that much bearing on you because we're autonomous individuals, and that you are powerful and can do whatever you want, and you are smart enough to bend the world to meet your desires. But when we live like owners in a house that doesn't belong to us, then not only do we usurp God's role, but we also do harm to God's very creation over which he called us to steward, including ourselves. We do harm to ourselves when we do this. As inhabitants of the same ecosystem that God's creatures depend on us to steward. This is why the laws that God gave about stewarding creation in Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy were so specific to the times back then, not necessarily applicable to our times today, but also why the spirit of that same law back then is timeless for us today. Nearly every book of the Old Testament harkens back constantly and consistently to God's original stewardship charge in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Jesus in his ministry quoted a number of verses from the Old Testament, some from Psalms, Deuteronomy, and also verses from Genesis chapters 1 and chapter 2. This was Jesus' worldview. This is what he believed. This is what he came to embody and he's pointing to a future time when God will restore and redeem all that God created back into a right relationship with him. So what does Jesus say about this? What does the New Testament say about this very important issue taking place in our culture right now? Well, as a matter of fact, Jesus' first words to declare his ministry spoke to the heart of his perspective for creation. Listen to this. This is from Luke chapter 4, verse 18 and following, and this was, according to the Gospel of Luke, this was the first words that Jesus declared when he started his ministry. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. In the phrase, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, Jesus was referencing a command that God gave to Israel in Leviticus chapter 25 called the year of Jubilee. Maybe you've heard of it. If you haven't, that's okay. The year of Jubilee provided a perfect Sabbath year after seven, seven seven-year cycles. So essentially every 50th year, God called all of his people to rest and all of the earth to rest. No work, no harvest, no slave, no debt, no war. Slaves and servants returned home. Imagine that. Debts were canceled. The land fallowed. No planting, no harvesting. And the nation lived at peace. Everyone and everything rested and reset. It's like the ultimate siesta. I mean... Hang up and hang out for a year, right? I mean, how cool would that be? Just hanging up and hanging out with each other for a year and enjoying each other, enjoying enjoying the fellowship of one another and enjoying the land and and the beauty of God's creation, what he created and resting from the work. How many times do you think Israel followed this command over a 1,500-year stretch of time between the moment that God gave this command and the moment when Jesus announced His ministry in Luke chapter 4? I mean, the obvious answer would be 30, right? 1,500 divided by 50 equals 30. So, so we, could, we would imagine that Israel experienced 30 jubilee years. In fact, Israel experienced this zero times. Israel never once experienced the year of jubilee. They never once obeyed this command by God to rest and to experience this Sabbath year. Not one single time in nearly 1500 years of history, God gave Israel the ultimate test of trust with the ultimate reward of rest and provision. But the people just couldn't obey it. They, it. was it was too demanding. It was too much. I mean imagine imagine coming to the 48th, 49th year and you happen to have servants who work your land and on all this cattle who harvest for you. Imagine that. Imagine thinking, am I going to really let them leave? Am I really going to trust God with his provision and let my servants leave and not yield a harvest? Am I going to go a whole year without a harvest? It was too demanding, which made Jesus' words all the more inspiring for those self aware to their own needs, but awfully terrifying to others who place their hope in anything or anyone else other than Jesus, who place their hope in in the economy, in their vocations, in their national identity. In this declaration from Luke chapter four, Jesus announced that he came to free us from sin and also to restore the earth and everything in it back to God's living garden of delight. The word Eden translated from Hebrew into English means delight. His garden of delight. We're living in that same garden today. In the garden of God's delight, seeking delight with one another, seeking delight with God's creation, and ultimately seeking delight in God, (laughs) with our Father. That's what Jesus came to restore. It's what he came to announce. Jesus didn't come to free us from the world. He came to free us from sin so that we might live fully in this world as full human beings, as full sons and daughters of the Most High. We read Luke 4 today with so much hope. With so much, I mean, every time I read Luke 4, I just feel so invigorated. But how do you suppose the crowd of Israelites felt after hearing Jesus speak Isaiah's words about the Messiah and quote the year of Jubilee? Well, a few verses later, Luke tells us that they wanted to throw him off the mountainside. It's just a few verses later. Because they knew that the year, what the year of the Lord's favor meant. They knew what that meant. And they feared that this Jesus would disrupt their livelihoods, their personal desires, and their national identity. And two millennia later, many people still hold the same fears about Jesus. If Jesus' way for you feels disruptive for you, if you feel like Jesus disrupts your livelihood, your personal desires, and your national identity, then perhaps those fears might be indicating areas that Jesus desires to release you and give you his freedom. Jesus' entire life pointed to the coming day when heaven and earth will become one according to Revelation 21. And all creation would be restored. Every miracle that he made, every healing, and every forgiven sin was meant to direct our eyes upward like a signpost to our promised restoration with the Father. Jesus restored a few in his ministry to show God's kingdom promises for all. For all back then, for all today, and for all who come in the future. Eventually the time will come. When God is our lessor, we'll return to claim from his stewards what he rightfully owns. And until that day comes, Jesus invites us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus invites us to steward everything within our influence in our midst according to his heavenly way. And to remind us that while we are still creatures in his creation, he has given us his authoritative covering to advance his kingdom by stewarding creation and all within it. So we get to participate in this. We're not passive in God's redemptive narrative. By his grace, by his love, by his true and amazing plan, he invites us to walk with him in this restoration effort, as ones who are being restored and who also get to participate in the act of restoration with others. When you pray for someone, when you lift someone to the Lord in prayer, you are participating in God's restoration work. Every breath of God's good, clean air that you breathe is God's sanctifying work happening within you, though it won't be complete in this life we get to experience a step taken toward becoming what God envisions for you. When Jesus resurrected from the grave, he resurrected in a physically mysteriously redeemed body that bore the wounds of our healing and yet also pointed to the coming restoration that all of us experience who walk and live in his way. Now, some of you might be thinking, okay, I'm I'm tracking with you, right? Pastor Ryan, I'm with you, maybe to an extent, at least. But you also might be thinking, but ultimately, doesn't, doesn't our earth burn up in fire at the end? So ultimately, why does this really matter? And if you're thinking, if you're wondering that, then, again, I affirm that. Because there are verses throughout God's word that speak to that. 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 10 says this, "They the Lord will come as unexpectedly as a thief, then the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise, and the very elements themselves will disappear in fire. And the earth and everything on it will be found to deserve judgment." This is Peter's chief apostle or this is Jesus's chief apostle Peter writing this right now. And I believe this verse is one of the reasons why 61% of people with a deep faith who take God's word seriously, who have read God's word don't necessarily believe that environmental stewardship matters for them in their faith. But I also think that Peter isn't describing how the earth ends. I believe he's telling a deep truth about God's purifying judgment against sin. When the day of the Lord finally arrives, and that day will come, his wrath will permanently remove the cancerous evil that seeks to destroy this earth and our lives and finish the defeat over the evil one that Jesus made victorious on the cross, amen. Amen. God's justice is like a precise laser proton therapy, burning away the sin to save his creation. As Christ's followers, this verse is both good news about God's judgment and also hopeful news about how we live in this earth about how we steward God's world. The final day of the Lord is an amazing mystery about which we know very little. But here's what we do know. That if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. Has come. The old has gone, the new is right here. This is present tense language. Here and now language. That restoration is happening right now. Albeit, it won't happen fully as we know it in this life, but we're on our way. This is every believer's truth. Your old life is over. You are being made new into God's family with the full rights and the full charge of stewardship that our father afforded to our ancient parents. So as Christ followers, what is our, found, our, our, what is our foundation then? How, how, do we, how do we navigate these waters? Our foundation for stewardship is based on the following six principles. From God's word from beginning to end. And the first one is this, that all creation belongs to God. All creation belongs to God, including you and me. And so may we turn our eyes to Jesus and invite him to take our lead and help others do the same so that they can know this reality for themselves. God charged humanity to rule over and to serve creation as his stewards. To rule over and to serve. Our sin pride has caused destruction not only in our own lives but also in creation. And as our Messiah King, Jesus will one day redeem all creation from sin, restore all creation back to right, and reconcile all creation with our Heavenly Father. We know this. So until then, Jesus invites us to pray for his kingdom, to come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And also to lead our lives with the same vision for restoration as the creator, to live our lives with the same vision for the day of the Lord's favor. So this week, as we, as we work this out together, as we take steps together, as we talk about this together, as we engage in this in groups and, and look at God's word and ultimately pray through what God's word tells us about this issue, may I invite us to consider three opportunities for how to live God's way with creation. First is, let's invite God's spirit to renew our passion for God's original charge on our lives. I would imagine that with as many people in the room and watching online, that all of us are at different passion levels with this. Some may be very high, but some may be very low. But that doesn't necessarily, your passion marker doesn't necessarily mean that God's charge on you doesn't stand. So let's invite God's spirit to refresh us in this. You have not, you've been called to Radah and to abide in every aspect of your life. Both with the earth that we observe all around us, our environment, and also with people. With your vocations and your families. You've been called to rule over and to serve together. And that charge hasn't changed since God gave it to us in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. That's what the witness of Scripture tells us. God made you a steward because he loves you. And all creation is depending on us to lead well. So when we either dodge our responsibility or use God's charge for our selfish gain, we're sinning against God. Secular environmentalists, listen to this. James Gustav Speth, chairman of the Council of Environmental Quality under Jimmy Carter, gave this statement at his retirement. He said this, I used to think that the top environmental problems were biodiversity loss, ecosystem collapse, and climate change. I thought that 30 years of good science could address these problems. But since then, I've realized that the top environmental problems are selfishness, greed, and apathy. And to deal with these, we need a cultural and spiritual transformation. This was spoken by a secular humanist. We scientists don't know how to do that. But do you know who does know how to do that? God's people know how to do that. The church knows how to do that. We know how to address these issues. Truly. We don't need to be scientists to engage with this issue. God's given us a way to address selfishness, greed, and apathy. And to help all people experience freedom. And when we invite Jesus to take the lead on our life, his love frees us from the oppressive shackles of sin's greed to receive his favor and heed his charge. At times, conversations like this on environmental issues, man, they, they use shame and blame. I have felt it myself to motivate people to action by making this issue all about just do a few things. Just, just recycle, just conserve. If you just do that, then we'll save the world. And those things are Those things are really good to do. We don't want to not do those things. But all that simply does is make your value as a human being with this issue based on what you can do for someone else or something else or some entity. Our charge to steward creation isn't necessarily about what you can do. It's fundamentally about who you are and whose you belong to. God gave you the privilege to steward because you bear his image. He's entrusted the garden to you because you are worthy. You're worthy of it. You're worthy of the honor to steward what belongs to God. So let's do that. Let's, let's invite God's spirit to refresh us. Second, let's read God's word wholly and completely together. Like the crowd in Jesus' day, other motivations took over God's best for their lives to the point that they couldn't recognize the incarnate God standing right in front of them. As a result, the tides of cultural, political, and social expectations swelled over them and swept them away from God's charge, swept them from seeing Jesus. The way we rise above our C-level, our S-E-E-level, of societal trends to the heights of faith is by prayerfully reading God's word all the way through. Not just just the parts that we understand or not the parts that, that seem to make sense to us on the front end, but we read it all the way through. And we do that within the company fellowship of the church. We do this together. I've learned so much in journeying with each and every single one of you. Some of you I've known for years. And as you've gained insights from the Lord, it helps me gain insights into God's word. So we do this together. Author and professor Sandra Richter gave a compelling Christ-centered vision for environmental stewardship in a book titled Stewards of Eden. Highly recommend this book to you. She wrote, From beginning to end, the Bible reveals God's ideal for a world in which humanity would succeed in building human civilization in the midst of God's kingdom by directing and harnessing the amazing resources of this planet under the wise direction of our creator. As a result, If we could do this as a result, progress would not not necessitate pollution, expansion would not require extinction, and the privilege of the strong wouldn't demand the deprivation of the weak. Environmental consequences often make the greatest impact on the poor and the marginalized in our communities. And perhaps one of the greatest cities that see that is our very own and this region. So whenever we take steps to steward God's good creation together, we are taking steps to follow Jesus' way of love. We're loving our neighbor. Environmental stewardship is a kingdom of God issue. And right now, our city, our region, need Christians like us to reclaim our rightful call and responsibility to lead the way on caring for God's creation here in South Florida and around the world. And when we do a watching world, we'll see our witnesses of love by how we care. They will see the church alive, not in opposition, but walking with them and stewarding what belongs to God. Among the top concerns for Gen Z, for our teenagers and 20-somethings is the environment. Consistently, the environment ranks as one of their top concerns as we step into our charge as faithful stewards, not only will we be impacting the environment and God's creation, but we will also be sharing with the rising generations that we take God's word seriously from beginning to end and the church is alive for them in the coming generations. I mean, we we proclaim our witness to people who need to see the church moving on this issue. And then finally, since all of us bear responsibility for God's garden, let me encourage you to tend to your part of it. Just to your part of it. Don't concern yourself with the whole garden. Conversations like these too quickly become global in scope. They feel overwhelming as an individual in terms of what to do and what steps to take, which makes acting on environmental issues sometimes feel paralyzing. At least to me, they can feel paralyzing at times. As a whole, this issue is way too big for any one person, for any one organization, for any one nation. But God didn't charge you to take responsibility for the whole world. That's God's job. God's got the whole world in his hands. He's simply asking you to take responsibility to tend to what he has entrusted to you. That's it. And when I think about Radah and Abad's stewardship, I can't help but to think about my great-grandfather. This is a picture taken of him from 1964, literally tending to his garden. He ruled over and served his land that God gave to him. He didn't concern himself with the whole city. Didn't concern himself with the state. Just his land. And he removed every, everything that didn't belong in that land. Every bug, every piece of litter, every weed... And as I grew up and watched him tend his garden in his 70s and 80s, from my childhood years into my high school years, he would take me into his garden. And he would show me what was happening in the garden. And he would pick out the things that didn't belong. And he would talk about what he did to help grow the garden. The result was the Best rhubarb pie that you could possibly imagine, some of the freshest produce I've ever tasted. It was amazing watching him, watching him do this. He had total mastery over his garden, and yet everything he did was intended to serve the garden, to nurture the garden. And he taught me that if you take care of the garden, it'll take care of you. He passed away when I was in my senior year of high school, thereabout. But before he died, I started taking notice that the way he tended to his garden was the way he lived his life. He owned an auto parts store in our town. And I would hear stories about him interacting with the customers and leading with integrity and becoming a person in the city that, that you know, a leader in the city that others could trust. And I thought to myself, he, he, he's living his life in the same way that he tends his garden. He he has total mastery over his life, and yet he seeks to serve others with his life. He was a profound Jesus follower, a man that I looked up to, I still look up to to this day. And he taught me that all of us have a plot in God's garden, and in that plot, God gave us a portion of the earth on which to rule and to serve, including people to love. In that plot, a family to lead a vocation to serve and to dedicate your life to. So let's show our trust in the Lord by stewarding our plot. The plot of God's garden well, your faithfulness to God's charge today matters for eternity. And so let's, let's steward with Jesus at our center and with his heavenly vision guiding our way. Lord Jesus, we thank you Lord, we thank you for entering into our world, for not forgetting the garden that you made or the people that you created to steward it, Lord. But you, you came to us. You came back to find us, to show us your love, to give us your forgiveness, And to invite us back into the family so that we could live your way. That we could experience your love and your relationship. And we could, with our hands, with our feet, and with the mind and heart that seeks after you, we could steward well what you created. And so, Lord Jesus, we thank you for your salvation, for your constant grace and mercy on us and for your forgiveness on us when we fall short. Lord, help us enter into the fray of these important cultural conversations with your eyes, opening your word together and not losing sight of you, not getting caught up in, in all, the, just all the perils that come from, from the sways of culture, but Lord, may we find ourselves steadfast in you, walking together as one church. Lord, give us the courage. We need your courage and your strength as you make this prayer in your name. Now for some of you today, you might be wanting to take your first step with Jesus. Maybe you're sensing, I've been on the Radah side of life for too long and I need to give back to Jesus what belongs to him which is my life and receive his forgiveness and trust him for my life, trust his way. And if you're sensing that right now, then I want, you to invite a, I, want you, I want to invite you to pray this prayer with me and to make this day your first day with Jesus. Lord Jesus, today I'm turning from my way to your way. I receive your forgiveness of my sin and I'm placing my trust in you. Lord, help me take every step with you. I want more of your grace. I want your mercy. And so, Lord, help, help, my, help keep my eyes fixed on you, Lord Jesus, as I commit my life to you. If you prayed this prayer with me, and you invited Jesus into your heart to commit your life to him, then would you just simply raise your hand? I would love to say a prayer of blessing over you. Thank you. In the middle, thank you. Thank you to the hands raised in the middle. Thank you to the side, thank you. Thank you. More hands on the side, thank you very much. We give thanks to God for you in the front. Lord Jesus, for every uplifted hand, I pray that this day would be the first day of an eternal journey with you. Lord, where today they experience your salvation, grace, and mercy. The old life is gone. And the new creation is here. And so, Lord, for those who chose to put their trust in you, Lord, I pray that your spirit would help guide their way and that together as a church, they might feel our love for them, that they are not alone on this journey, that we are with them every step of the way as we make this prayer in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.